Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie The Lady Vanishes from 1938. The studio, well, this is a mouthful. Gaumont British Picture Corporation, because when it originally came out, it was in the UK. But the US rights are now MGM. The release date, October 7th, 1938, in the United Kingdom. The running time, 97 minutes. Of course, it was in black and white. Leonard Bolton from his terrific classic movie guide gives it 4 out of 4 stars. His quick little synopsis is... An old woman's disappearance during a train ride leads a baffled young woman into a dizzying web of intrigue. Delicious mystery comedy. Alfred Hitchcock at his best with a witty script by Frank Laudner and Sidney Gillott. And wonderful performances by Naughton Wayne and Basil Radford who had scored such a hit as a pair of twits that they repeated those roles in several other films. The Lady Vanishes is based on Ethelina White's novel The Wheel Spins, and the film was remade in 1979. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 98% fresh from 44 reviews. Their critics' consensus is, One of Alfred Hitchcock's last British films, this glamorous thriller provides an early glimpse of the director at his most stylishly entertaining. I'm almost positive I saw The Lady Vanishes at a Hitchcock festival, Uh, presented by the always awesome Stanford Theater in Palo Alto, California, before the pandemic. Of course, it used to be open all the time, but things have changed. Uh, And I always found it amusing that Hitchcock eventually made a movie called Strangers on a Train, because The Lady Vanishes could have been named the same thing. And we'll get into that. Hitchcock had the ability, unlike any other film director then and later, who could take one location and make it the most compelling film possible. He did this countless times, and part of it was based on his dislike of filming on location. But the other part is just his brilliance, along with his often forgotten wife Alma, and their ability to find stories that were truly riveting. Let's get into the main cast. You have Margaret Lockwood, who played Iris. And like many actors in the early years of film, Lockwood began in the theater before getting into films in 1934. She mostly had small roles that were routine in the sense that they were those young, innocent female types, but her big break came the same year as The Lady Vanishes for a film called Bank Holiday with John Lodge. The Lady Vanishes would be arguably her most recognizable role of her career. Michael Redgrave plays Gilbert, and similar to Lockwood, The Lady Vanishes would be Redgrave's most notable film role, and the bulk of his career would be on stage in England. And this was Redgrave's film debut. As I mentioned, the great Alfred Hitchcock directs this film, and I covered his early career in the 39 Steps episode, so from that film until Lady Vanishes, Hitchcock directed Secret Agent, Sabotage, and Young and Innocent. All right, let's get into the making of the film. So at the time, Hitchcock was looking to break into Hollywood, and he was negotiating with David O. Selznick. However, he was still under contract with Gaumont British, and his prior three films were not the hits that The 39 Steps was. He found a project that was already being developed and almost filmed for an American studio a year prior, that being The Lady Vanishes. Hitchcock and his wife Alma made major adjustments to the script, along with the screenwriters, as I mentioned earlier. And they added much of the comedic elements uh, in, that were found in this film. The original novel, as Leonard Maltin said, was called The Wheel Spins, and it was not the suspenseful thriller that Hitchcock turned the film into. 
Hitchcock filmed the movie on a set that was 90 feet long, and he only used one coach of the train. Again, Hitchcock hated shooting on location, but this was done mostly to keep the budget small. There is also less score music in The Lady Vanishes compared to his other films at the time, and this is actually kind of a plot point, but I won't spoil that for you. The great part about the first third of this film is that it's mostly comedy, which I will eventually describe for you. And then when you're watching it for the first time, it almost doesn't even feel like a Hitchcock film. But he's really setting up the viewer with little clues, but you won't notice because of the humor. Hitchcock wanted Robert Donut from The 39 Steps as the lead male actor. However, Donut turned down the role because of his asthma issues. And he had turned down other roles for the same reason, along with not wanting to get typecast for playing leads in thrillers. And Donut's role refusal was Michael Redgrave's good fortune, as this was the start of a successful career for him. However, coming from the stage, Redgrave did not enjoy having to immediately start working with other actors without getting to know them first. For example, he had only met Margaret Lockwood once during a photo shoot before he started shooting scenes with her. This was difficult to find chemistry with anyone, no matter how gifted of an actor you are. And it's almost like a baseball pitcher throwing to a catcher for the first time and, and not knowing what type of rapport you're going to have with them. You have to develop that rapport. So Redgrave had to almost relearn how to act for films compared to stage. But the financial benefits were far more lucrative on screen than on stage. Though, as I mentioned, he would spend a great deal of his career and later career on stage. All right, let's get into the movie. So it begins with probably the most obvious shot of a town that is not a real town shot, but a miniature model. It's 1938, and Hitchcock was notorious, no pun intended, for hating to shoot on location. So the model shot is more humorous than anything. So the town is called Bendrika. It's not a real town. And the language spoken by Boris the innkeeper is sort of a mix between Italian, Hungarian, and German, though he will break out the English for tourists. And I guess for modern viewers, it's kind of like the gibberish spoken by the minions in Despicable Me. <laughs> and as it turns out, many of the people are stranded in town after an avalanche has snowed in the train for the folks trying to return back to England. Iris Henderson, who's played by Margaret Lockwood, and her two friends Blanche, Googie Withers, and Julie, Sally Stewart, are given preferential treatment from Boris because he's smitten with Iris. The rest of the stranded passengers are less than pleased that they have to wait for their rooms. And two of those annoyed guests are Caldecott, played by Naughton Wayne, and Charters, played by Basil Radford. They are two friends hoping to get back to England the next day to watch a cricket tournament. And Charters has a mustache, while Caldecott does not. So Caldecott and Charters are kind of like an old married couple, much like Laurel and Hardy, and are definitely the comic relief of the film. Here they are making their request for their rooms at the inn. Mountain. And a shower, of course. Hot and cold. And a private thing of me, if you've got one. Well, I'm sorry, gentlemen. The only things I've got is the maid room. Maid what? Room? <laughs> but I'm sorry. The whole hotel is spat. Jump to the sky. Oh, but that's impossible. We haven't fixed up yet. Uh, hang it all. You can't expect to put the two of us up in the maid's room. Well, don't get excited. I'll remove the maid out. <laughs> yes, I should think so. What? What are you talking about? Look, okay, I think I'll soon receive on the train. Okay. Huh? There is no eating on the train. No eating on the train? Yes, I mean... Heating! Oh, heating is no yeah. heating on the Oh, train. that's awkward. All right, we'll take it. Uh, just a minute, with one condition. Mm -hmm. You have to have the maid comes to your room and remove her wardrobe. Anna! She's a good girl, and I don't want to lose her. La cracatastica, la fretta, la ficastila aratita, la acustica, la cata, la puta, huh? <laughs> 
Who's got a gun dressed? Rather primitive humor, I think. Grown up children enough? That was rather an awkward situation over that girl. I'm sure you couldn't have given us one each. Eh? I mean, uh, a room apiece. Oh. It's this hanging about that gets me. If only we knew what was happening in England. Mustn't lose grip, Charters. Come in. Did you follow that? I did. Tell her this has gone far enough. No, uh, no change, uh, change here. Um, outside. Forestway. She doesn't understand. No. Come on. So the guy is trying to explain that the maid shouldn't change in front of them, but she doesn't understand and thinks they're saying it's okay to change in front of them. So they decide to go downstairs in the meantime. Charters keeps bumping his head on the low ceiling beams, and this is probably the most obvious nod to Laurel and Hardy and slapstick comedy. The vast majority of their gags are verbal. The guys overhear Boris taking a phone call from England, and Charters decides to hijack the call while Boris looks for a guess for who the phone call is. Charters asks the phone caller what the score of the cricket match is. He's indignant that the caller has no idea and hangs up on him. Then the guest arrives and takes his phone call, only to be upset that there's nobody on the phone. The guys then try to get some food in the dining room, but discover that the inn has run out of food because of the many unexpected guests due to the avalanche. They do end up chatting with a kind older woman named Miss Froy, that's Dame May Witty, and she's a music teacher in Bandrika. She tells them that she is finally going back to England after six years in Bandrika. Miss Froy excuses herself and goes up to her room, only to be disturbed by stomping noises from the room above her. Her next-door neighbor is Iris, and Iris calls Boris to find out what's going on. The innkeeper finds that Gilbert Redman, played by Michael Redgrave, is playing the clarinet while three of his friends are dancing in time to his playing. And Gilbert won't stop playing as he's a musicologist, working on charting folk music for a book he wants to write. Meanwhile, Caldecott and Charters are back in the room relaxing in bed, and there's only one bed since it's the maid's quarters. Nothing but baseball. You know, we used to call it rounders. Children play it with a rubber ball and a bit of stick. What a word about cricket. Americans got no sense of proportion. Come in. this ridiculous lack of privacy. Lock the door. Oh! So the maid keeps smiling at the guys as she likely believes they're a couple. And I have no idea if this was Hitchcock's plan, but in today's eyes, it could be seen that Caldecott and Charters might be a gay couple since they have absolutely no interest in the maid flirting with them. In any case, Charters continues to bump his head on things. Upset with the clarinet music and dancing, Iris bribes Boris to kick Gilbert out of his room. So Gilbert retaliates by entering Iris' room while she's sleeping and decides that he's going to stay in her room. 
He puts his suitcase and belongings down and goes to the bathroom to take a bath. Iris realizes she's stuck and gets Boris to give Gilbert his room back. So we then go back to Miss Froy's room as she listens to a man singing in the street below her room. Obviously, someone didn't like his singing as, the, as from the shadows, the singer is strangled. But we don't see who killed the singer. Next morning, everyone from the inn arrives at the train station to catch their ride to England. Miss Froy runs into Iris and her friends, but she can't seem to find her bag. She actually drops her glasses and Iris grabs them and then attempts to give them back to Miss Froy. However, someone from upstairs drops a planter box out of the window and hits Iris in the back of her head. Was this intentional and was it meant for Miss Froy? This is all part of the Hitchcock intrigue. Miss Froy decides to look after Iris to make sure she's okay, but Iris likely has a concussion. She wakes up in her compartment on the train with Miss Froy and a strange couple with a little boy and an even creepier woman who has a peculiar stare to her. And this is where the plot really starts to kick in. There, there. You'll be all right in a minute. Just take everything quietly. Put some of this old cologne on your head. any better? Yes, thank you. I'm alright. What you need is a good, strong cup of tea. I'll ring for the attendant. No, no, please don't bother. I'll go to the dining car myself. I need some air. Oh, well, in that case, I'll come with you. If you don't mind, that is. No, of course not. Your pardon, I'm so sorry. Oh, you can always tell a honeymoon couple, you know. They're so shy. Why did you do that? We don't want people staring at us. Anyone would think the whole legal profession were dogging you. Oh, one would be enough. You even thought that beggar in Damascus was a barrister in disguise. I merely said his face was distinguished enough for a judge. You hurried off in the opposite direction, I noticed. That's not true. I was looking for a street called Straight. You weren't so careful the first few days. I know, I know. And anyways, for you meeting someone, you know what about me? Robert thinks I'm cruising with Mother. If one's feeling a little bit shaky, I always think it's best to sit in the middle of the coach. Preferably facing the engine. Uh, a pot of tea for two, please. Very good. Oh, and, and just a minute. Will you please tell them to make it from this? I don't drink any other. Uh, and, and make absolutely sure that the water is really boiling. You understand? <laughs> it's a little fad of mine. My dear father and mother, who I'm thankful to say are still alive and enjoying good health, invariably drink it. And so I follow their footsteps. Do you know a million Mexicans drink it? At least that's what it says on the packet. It's very kind of you to help me like this. I don't think we've introduced ourselves. My name's Iris Henderson. I'm going home to be married. Really? Oh, how very exciting. I do hope you'll be happy. Thank you. You'll have children, won't you? They make such a difference. I always think it's being with kiddies so much that's made me, uh, if I may say so, young for my age. I'm a governess, you know. My name is Roy. You said Roy? No,
Uh, please reserve two places for lunch, will you? That is, if you care to have it with me. Of course. There's nothing moved about it. It simply wasn't out, that's all. But for the umpire's blunder, he'd probably still be batting. What do you mean? I don't understand. I'll show you. Look here. I saw the whole thing. Now then, there's Hammond. There's the bowler. There's the umpire. Sugar? There is no sugar. Now watch this very, very carefully, Colligan. Grimmett was bowling. May I trouble you for the sugar, please? What? The sugar, please. Thank you so much. If I were you, I'd try and get a little sleep. It'll make you feel quite well again. There's a most intriguing acrostic in the needlewoman. I'm going to try and unravel it before you wake up. Reservations for lunch, please. Yeah? Uh, Madame has booked for lunch. Oh, I think my friend did. She's got the tickets. Have you seen my friend? No. Um, my friend, where is she? La Signora Inglese, the English lady, where is she? There has been no English lady here. What? There has been no English lady here. There has. She sat there in the corner. You saw her. You spoke to her. She sat next to you. But it's ridiculous. She took me to the dining car and came back here with me. Who went and came back alone? Maybe you don't understand. I mean the lady who looked after me when I was knocked out. Ah, perhaps it make her you forget, eh? Well, I may be very dense, but if this is some sort of a joke, I'm afraid I don't see the point. So Iris awakens after her tea with Miss Froy, only to discover that she's nowhere to be found. And the creepy couple in their car acts like they had never seen Miss Froy. Iris frantically looks throughout the train to find Miss Froy, but to no avail. Nobody remembers seeing an older English woman at all. The waiter who took their order says that they didn't see any English woman, even though Miss Froy handed him a packet of her own tea. 
Even the bill says T for one. So Iris runs into Gilbert on the train and he offers to try to help her find Miss Froy. Though he thinks that she may be suffering trauma from the blow she took on the back of the head during the train station. Gilbert goes with Iris back to her compartment to talk to the people who have been riding with her. And they deny ever seeing Miss Froy, though they definitely have. Gilbert and Iris meet a brain surgeon while trying to find Miss Froy named Dr. Hart, played by Paul Lucas who also thinks that the blow that Iris took on her head may be causing her to think that she saw a woman that didn't really exist. So if you remember from the clip, when Iris and Miss Froy were heading to get tea, Miss Froy accidentally went into a room with a man and a woman. This couple are trying to remain anonymous since they're having an affair. So when Iris, Gilbert, and Dr. Hatz question the man about seeing Miss Froy, he denies ever seeing an English woman because he wants to keep his affair secret. Iris realizes that the only other people that could have seen Miss Froy was Caldecott and Charters, as they begrudgingly pass the sugar to Miss Froy while getting tea. However, Charters overhears the commotion that Iris is making and her threatening to stop the train if someone doesn't try to find Miss Froy. So Charters doesn't want to even miss more of the cricket tournament and decides that he's going to play dumb about Miss Froy in order to keep from the train being stopped. So this is the brilliance of Hitchcock and the typical theme for many of his films, paranoia and suspense. The viewer mostly believes Iris, but there's some doubt in our minds too. The train has its first stop and Iris and Gilbert look to see if Miss Freud gets off on this stop. Nobody gets off the train and only one person gets on. A patient completely wrapped in bandages on a gurney. And this is a patient of Dr. Hart's. However, Iris gets a glimpse of hope when the woman who's having an affair with the man tells Iris that she did see an older English woman when she stumbled into her compartment. The reason she comes clean is because she realizes that her companion likely won't get a divorce from his wife to avoid scandal, and he's going to be up for some prestigious government job. This is her way of getting back at him. So Iris goes back to her compartment after the weird guy with the sun says that the woman that Iris described is back in the compartment. Iris and Gilbert arrive to find another woman dressed exactly like Miss Froy, but it's not her. It's a woman named Madame Coomer. Iris and Gilbert decide to take Madame Coomer to the compartment of the couple having their affair to confirm if Coomer is really Froy. Before this occurs, though, the woman discovers that her plan to blackmail her man <laughs> into getting a divorce won't work as his wife will never divorce him. The woman realizes that she's sunk and decides to say that Coomer is the woman she saw, much to the frustration of Iris. So Iris now starts to think that Dr. Hartz may be correct in his assessment that her concussion has led her to believe that she saw a woman that didn't really exist. She agrees to take her mind off things by getting something to eat with Gilbert in the dining car. Gilbert talks about his life and how he's writing a book about folk dancing. However, Iris just can't get Miss Froy out of her mind and remembers the line that Miss Froy said about a million Mexicans drinking the tea she keeps with her. And then in typical Hitchcock fashion, Iris sees the proof she needed. So even though you couldn't see it, because I played an audio clip earlier, when Miss Froy was trying to say her name... To Iris, there was a train whistle. Miss Freud then wrote Freud with her finger on the compartment window, which appeared through the steam. Now, when she's sitting with Gilbert, Iris sees the same name of Freud appearing on the window. Iris knows now that she's not dreaming up Miss Freud. This sort of connection is why Hitchcock is always brilliant in his plot sequences. So with this, Iris finally snaps and tries to get the train stopped to find Miss Freud. She pulls the brake handle, just like I love Lucy, <laughs> and stops the train before she faints. Iris' stunt delays the train for 10 minutes before restarting. 
So nobody believes Iris, though Gilbert is on the fence, and Caldecott and Charters have a slight belief because, according to them, just nobody just disappears out of thin air. Gilbert finally gets a clue that Iris may be telling the truth because a cook throws some garbage out the window of the train, and then the tea package with, quote, a million Mexicans on it that Miss Froy said that she always has stuck to the compartment window and Gilbert sees it. Gilbert agrees that he and Iris need to search the train for Ms. Froy. Iris and Gilbert search the luggage room and see a box moving and believe it may be Ms. Froy, but it's just a baby calf. They then discover that the weirdo with the little boy is actually an Italian magician who just happens to have an act where he makes people disappear. You were about to tell me of your theory. Oh, my theory. Well, my theory, my dear Watson, is that we are in very deep waters indeed. Oh, thank you very much. Let us marshal our facts over a pipe full of baked shag. In the first place, a little old lady disappeared. Everyone that saw her promptly insists that she was never there at all. Right? Right. We know that she was. Therefore, they did see her. Therefore, they are deliberately lying. Why? No, no, I'm only watching. Well, don't bury yourself in the I'll tell you why. Because they don't face an inquiry, because Miss Troy is probably still somewhere on this train. I told you that hours ago. Oh, yes, I did. For that, my dear Watson, you shall have a trichinopoly cigar. Oh, thank you. Now, there's only one thing left to do, you know. Search the train in disguise. As what? Well, uh, Old English gentleman. It's through you. That's all right. Ah. Uh, Will Hay, for instance. Now, boys, boys, uh, which of you have stolen Miss Froy? Oh, no, oh, oh. Those glasses. Give them to me. Why? They're Miss Froy's. Right as Gilbert and Iris find pieces of Miss Froy's glasses, the Italian magician appears and says those are his glasses, and a hilarious fight ensues. Eventually, Gilbert punches the magician, and Iris hits him over the head with a bottle, and they dump him into a wooden box. Unfortunately, it's a false bottom box, and the magician goes missing. Next, Iris and Gilbert look for Dr. Hatz to tell him about the magician. They go to his compartment, and they see a bandaged patient and a nun watching over. Gilbert and Iris believe that it's possible that Miss Froy may have been switched by Madame Coomer during the first train stop and that Miss Froy might be the bandaged person. Dr. Hatz arrives before Gilbert can unbandage the patient. He assures Iris and Gilbert that this is a badly injured person and not to touch them. Alright, so is the bandaged person really Miss Froy? Or is it just a Hitchcock MacGuffin? Did Miss Froy even exist? And speaking of MacGuffin... What about the singer at the hotel? Do we even discover who killed him? I've set everything up for you, and now if you're intrigued enough, you should definitely watch the film yourself. It is a fabulous ride, pun totally intended, and a terrific example of early Hitchcock. Alright, some fun facts. Hitchcock said that this movie was inspired by a legend of an English woman who went with her daughter to the Palace Hotel in Paris in the 1880s at the time of the Great Exposition. According to Hitchcock, the woman was taken sick, and they sent the girl across Paris to get some medicine in a horse vehicle, so it took about four hours. When she came back, she asked, how is my mother? And they said, what mother? My mother. She's here. She's in her room, room 22. And they go up there, and it's a different room, different wallpaper, everything. And the payoff of this whole story is, so the legend goes, that the woman had bubonic plague, and they dared not let anyone know that she died. Otherwise, all of Paris would have emptied. Kind of fitting nowadays, right? (laughs) 
So the popularity of Charters and Caldecott's characters led to three films featuring the duo after the success of The Lady Vanishes. And my DVD version, which is from Criterion, includes Crook's Tour from 1941. Vivian Lee actually screen-tested for the role of Iris Henderson. The remake in 1979 starred Elliot Gould, Sybil Shepard, and Dame Angela Lansbury. Murder, she wrote. All right, we have a very special guest and classic movie enthusiast, Samantha, and she joins us to chat about The Lady Vanishes, and I will be back next week to talk about yet another random movie from my DVD collection. Okay, we are back with Samantha. Welcome back. Great. Hi. So we know you love Hitchcock. And when I presented this film to you, I, w- I was like, well, of course you've seen this. And you're like, no, I haven't seen this. And I was like, okay, well, well, this will be fun because you've never seen it. And we'll, I'll get like your first impression about it. And then I just come to find out you've actually seen the movie. <laughs> so. I have seen it. I know. Because when you met, brought it up, it, I was like, oh, the lady vanishes. Yeah. It's like one of his last like British films. I think mm-hmm. it's the last one. And I'm like, I definitely saw this. Um, but then I was like, I looked up the plot summary and I was like, wait a second. I don't remember like a, a resort in like Europe type Mm. thing. And then once I started it though, and like the old lady came in to the screen and like we got to the train, I was like, oh uh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Mrs. Froy. Mrs. Froy. Miss Froy. Froy. Oh Yeah. So did you originally get it confused with strangers on a train? Maybe, maybe they they got like, maybe I thought they were a bit similar, but no, like, yeah, I just thought like I totally missed this one. And I didn't really remember what the plot was until I started going and then like it all came back. Okay. So once it started to come back, were you like, oh, I, I do like this movie? Or was it like, oh, this is the one I don't remember because I didn't Ooh. like it? No, I do. This one is a really fun, it's a really fun thriller, Yeah, in my opinion, because it kind of starts out a little bit silly, mm-hmm. and then you're like, this is a Hitchcock, like, where <laughs> are we going with this? Um, and then, but soon, like, the little bits and pieces come together, and it is one of his early movies, so you kind of see a lot of the touches that you know, come later on in his movies and um, they, I, oh, I just totally lost my train of thought there. What was your question? <laughs> I have to remember too, because <laughs> I was listening to your answer. Oh. No, t- so seeing it again. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So you, you enjoyed it again. This wasn't one that you forgot oh, because yeah. you didn't like it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally, yeah. I really like it. Oh, and I think where I was going with that was mm-hmm. just, um, yeah, once they get to kind of the second half of the movie, when they get on the train, it really turns into kind of like a fun thriller. Right. And it is still, it is kind of creepy, but at the same time, there's silly moments and there's kind of some very sinister points. Um, but I think it's just a really unique combo of some of Hitchcock's little themes that he likes to use. 
Yeah, because even in his like super dark films, like the later ones, there's still his humor present. But this one has, as you said, it has more than than normal. And I think part of it is because of the the little almost Laurel and Hardy duo, duo yeah. <laughs> of Caldecott and Charters. They're they're hilarious, and and actually they ended up being, having a little bit of a spinoff. They did movies on their own uh, after this. How did you oh. feel about them? Oh, I I loved their characters. I think. They, for some reason, I didn't remember them. Um, I mostly just remembered kind of the train mystery portion. Right. So re-watching it, I really enjoyed their perspective and just there's such the stereotypical, like dry British mm-hmm. characters. They just want to get home and <laughs> they want to know the results to what I think they're the cricket match yeah. or something. And exactly. like that's all they want to do. They don't want to deal with anything. Problems keep happening and they're just, oh, just so frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're like an old married couple in many ways. Uh-huh. Yeah. But yeah, they have some great little dialogue and it's a good, a good kind of a, a re- like comic relief, but it's not your, you know, your typical, I think, comic relief because they are such droll, like they have such a droll and dry sense of um, way they talk and everything. Yeah. And I'm curious, like in modernize, because you, you you love old films, so you're used to certain tropes. But I think people watching today, they would probably think, oh, they're a gay couple, you know, oh, but back maybe. then. <laughs> and I, there's been tons of theories written later that, oh, oh they're, they're like one of the early gay couples on screen, though it's never, you know, they, of course, they would never say that. But, you know, they're, I think, oh, aren't they sleeping in the same bed in the hotel? Well, they get there and because there was an avalanche mm-hmm. there were so many people at the hotel right. they, they couldn't get rooms right so they end up the only room left is the maid's quarters oh that's so, right which is a funny scene too yeah so they have to kind of stay with the maid and in the same room together and i don't remember the train if they had like a separate cabin like cabin or seating however that works that's true but, yeah. Oh, I didn't know the whole like gay angle. Yeah, and it came out much later. Okay, because I didn't see that at all. Because yeah, like mm-hmm. you said, from watching so many old movies, and you kind of see it a lot. Like you know, close male friends. Exactly. Like, like very much travel. like Laurel and Hardy. Yeah. Yeah, they travel together, and oh, there's only one bed in the hotel room. Mm-hmm. Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not a big deal at all. But yeah, yeah. I think modernized might see it a little bit different. I don't know. Yeah. 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 And kind of, you know, they do, they are very, you know, well-dressed and mm-hmm. very prim and proper. But to me, that's kind of like, you know, that upper class posh, like British. Exactly. Um, kind of character. And I'm glad you brought up the maid because she's funny. Like, because she, she kind of like kind of makes eyes at them too. And they're not yeah. sure how, what to make of her. Uh-huh. Because I think the, um, the hotel clerk or manager there's some kind of moment where he kind of like winks at her or something yeah like you know you need to go get dressed in their room wink <laughs> wink and then i don't know if she thinks like there's more to the deal or right, exactly. <laughs> and then yeah the two men are kind of like just a little like not disgusted but you're like, oh, this is not appropriate. <laughs> right, especially for 1937, 38. Yeah. 
<laughs> so, and then we get into the, like the main characters and it's almost like they're, I don't know. They're, they're almost downplayed in many ways. So Iris mm-hmm. and, and Gilbert, how, how did you feel about them? Yeah, they don't, you don't really know they're going to be the main duo until later. Mm-hmm. And especially with Gilbert, like he kind of pops up at the hotel and you're like, okay, hmm, what's going to happen here? Cause him and Iris kind of have their little moment where she gets frustrated and then he ends up going to her hotel room because he's making noise. And oh, that's right. Yes. So, yeah. And he's like, well, I'm going to stay in here then if you're so mad about my noise. And right. <laughs> so you kind of see like, okay, this care, this is probably going to turn into something, mm-hmm. but yeah, then they don't really um, interact again until they get on the train. And um, then they kind of turn into the like crime solving duo. Um which I liked. It was kind of, yeah, another trope where you have the rich, not really uptight woman, but very proper lady. And then he's kind of a silly working class. Yeah. More of a rebel artsy. And um, they end up working together and spoiler alert, they fall (laughs) in love. (laughs) Well, one of the main things that Hitchcock seems to do in a lot of his films is the notion of someone starting to lose their mind. Like they know something, yeah. the viewers in on it, and everyone else around them thinks they're they're losing it. And so that's that's a common trope, uh, if you want to call it that, for Hitchcock, mm-hmm. and it definitely appears here. Yeah. Oh, I really like how that it's um, uh, how it's set up in this movie because the the beginning is so silly and then you're like okay time to get on the train mm-hmm. where's the plot going and then you start to get these little hints of well iris is outside and then she gets hit on the head right and she gets a little woozy and then i really like how when they transition to the train she gets on the train and then there's a moment with how they edit it where she kind of starts to fall asleep and then you see the um the wheels of the train kind of like over I don't know the technical language here but you see that pop up like on top of the image right so there's kind of like this motion and it's really kind of dizzying so you're wondering oh is she the next few scenes, like, is this really happening or is this a dream? Right. And then once you get into the mystery later of Miss Freud isn't real, then kind of as the viewer, you're also a little confused. Like, oh, was that first part of the movie? Did that actually happen? Or because of how it was edited and pieced together, it's kind of, yeah, it's a little spooky and off, off-putting yeah, and I think that's the brilliance of Hitchcock because he keeps you guessing the, yeah. the whole time. And this is one of his kind of the, you know, pre or going into World War II. So it is interesting with that plot and the spy angle because he did a lot of spy yeah. movies for, for, uh, during his British days. Yeah, and then it's based in a fake country. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> in the very beginning, in the very beginning, you could totally tell it's a model too. <laughs> they're yeah. going to. Oh, I know. I was going to mention that. Like you, yeah, the little buildings. Oh, and then it kind of looks like Switzerland, maybe yeah. or Germany. But then they sound like they're speaking 
Italian-esque languages at some time, at some point. So, yeah. I think that makes it more fun, too. Yeah, more fun and, again, a, a little confusing. And you don't really know what, what you're involved in. So what little things did you pick up uh, watching it again? Like, what little plot twist did you really enjoy uh, just recently re-watching it? Yeah, so... I think one thing, I don't know if this is, was, if this was meant to happen this way, but mm-hmm. um, to go back to when Iris is hit on the head outside, how, how this scene is framed, Miss Froy is there too. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if she was meant to get hit on the head and knocked out. Right. Because, yeah, Miss Freud kind of goes over to help her and then something falls out of the window and it really could have landed on either of them. That's true. <laughs> and I'm like, hmm, I wonder if they wanted to, if that was going to be kind of the easy way to do it, you know, get rid of her there. And then they didn't have to do, with, you know, do the whole train plot or mm-hmm. maybe they would just have her unconscious on the train and it would have been much easier to switch her out because now that she was conscious she made friends and kind of exposed herself to a few people um which might not have happened yeah Um, and maybe maybe that's the mcguffin because that's the famous uh where you know you think it's going somewhere but it's really not and maybe as you said if she gets hit on the head that allows um meaning um Iris, if Iris gets hit on the head, that allows her to have the potential concussion. Did she dream mm-hmm. all this? And so, yeah, it takes you in a different, uh, you know, type of plot for this. Yeah, and it really overcomplicates everything because totally, she is kind of in and out of consciousness when they leave, and then you have all the people sitting near them who were paid off essentially to yes. help this go the way it did, and they had this woman there who really wasn't supposed to be there to begin with. Um, and I don't remember from be- the beginning if she was actually supposed to be on that train or if maybe she was delayed or had to leave early because of the avalanche and all of that. That's something I kind of want to look into because, yeah, if Iris wasn't even there, mm-hmm. um, it would have been a much swifter <laughs> crime. <laughs> well, yeah, and then we always get into that. Well, there would have been no movie. So. Yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> but... Yeah, we get instead we get the heroine who's trying to solve the mystery, which I always like. Yeah, and that's different, especially for back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she did have her help, but she stood her ground. She knew it was real, even though they wanted to tell her she was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. And then you also had the the interesting couple, the the woman who's the mistress of that one guy. Yeah. And so that added a little like they're part of the plot, but they're not kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. It added a lot of tension because they didn't want to get involved in anything. Right. They were in secret. They couldn't, it couldn't get out that they were on that train together. So yeah, that complicated it even more. And Mm -hmm. then, um, I don't think our comedic duo really had much of an effect, but they were, no. they were also kind of witnesses. But again, they also didn't really want to get involved. So no, like everyone, you said, they care everyone, about cricket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they just wanted to pretend that nothing was going on. 
Yeah, and then of course everything kind of comes together at the end. Uh, I won't spoil it for people because it is a it's a typical Hitchcock kind of twist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a great ending, and with it gets very action packed. Yeah, it does. I wasn't expecting it. Kind of, it's it's one of those movies where you think it's over, and then there's a a quick little moment and then oh my gosh the suspense continues <laughs> that's true that, yeah. i like that when it keeps going uh-huh yeah because i was like from watching it before i thought oh there there was more to this story because you think okay they figured out what happened happy ending you know they're on their way home but no that's not what's happening <laughs> that's right that's right and and the payoff's definitely satisfying at the end. Yeah, yeah, it's a great, great, satisfying ending, and the kind of everyone gets what's coming to them. Exactly, <laughs> we, we, we always like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, anything else that that you know from re, from rewatching it, or any, any notes? And obviously, you'd recommend this if someone hasn't seen um, an early Hitchcock movie. Yeah, of his early. Films. I really like this one because it it's quick and it has a lot of the great themes um, that come up in his later movies. It's not as um, really complicated. It's just a yeah, really a really good little movie. The acting's great. You have your comedy, but then also the leads do the dramatic scenes really well. Um, and I really haven't seen a lot from Michael Redgrave. Like I know he's oh, yeah. the father of like the Redgrave family, but <laughs> I've never really seen him in a lot of films. Um, but so he, was, he was mostly a stage actor, yeah. I think, and mostly in England. So this and this was also his film debut. So mm-hmm, okay, yeah, and he's really great in this. I like the the chemistry between him and Iris is really good. Yeah, um, and I like this period to kind of that late thirties kind of style. Like I'm always a sucker for good costumes and (laughs) and outfits and Iris's bedtime outfit (laughs) is really great. Um, She wears an adorable little nightgown and a hair clip that matches. (laughs) (laughs) This is why we have Samantha on. She notices (laughs) these things. (laughs) Her outfits are really good. So it's just a great mix. Like if you like the, if you like Hitchcock thriller, it is that for half of the movie, maybe a little more than half. It has some really great suspense, but then it also is funny. um, And it has a cute little love story too. So. Yeah, it kind of has everything. It has everything. I forgot what this was such a good movie. <laughs> well, I'm glad I recommended it. I'm glad I brought it up. And and thank you for being on. You're welcome. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com. <laughs>